Well, greetings to all of you. Uh, this is a most unusual way to conduct services, but we're very thankful that we can assemble in this particular way. Otherwise, we would be all on our own. Hope all of you had a wonderful Passover and night to be much observed. I know that in some cases, the uh, parents were with their children, and that's all that they had, and gave the parents an opportunity to talk to their children about the meaning of it in a way that sometimes when we get together in larger groups, uh, the parents are one place, the children are another part of the table, and they don't have the opportunity to talk so much about the subject. And so I know that for some, this was a special occasion for them, and uh, they had the opportunity to to talk about the very meaning of the occasion during the whole meal. So there are good things that happen even when circumstances are not as uh, not as typical as they might otherwise be. I received an interesting email that I uh, from a, a member up in Ontario, and she wrote, "Have you noticed how much in common this particular Passover has with both the Old Testament and the New Testament?" The Israelites were told to stay in their homes because of the death angel. We are told to stay in our homes because death is outside. And then she goes on to explain that the Passover and the New Testament falls on the same day or fell on the same day of the week as it did this year, a Tuesday evening. Well, we don't want to try to make too much of, of some of these things, but the pattern that we find this week with Passover on Tuesday evening, night to be observed, Wednesday evening, and here the first day, Thursday, uh, is a very common pattern that we find with the Passover. In fact, if you go back to the very first Passover, we can show, we can prove that it happened the very same way. The Passover that first year was a Tuesday night, and then uh, the uh the Passover day was the day that they were going to Ramses so that they could gather together, and they left on Wednesday evening, uh, last evening for us. Uh, we know that because in Exodus, the 16th chapter, it says that it was the 15th day of the second month. And when we read the chapter, we realize that that day was a Sabbath day. Uh, very clearly, that's when uh, the manna was to, was to come the next morning, and it would come for six days, and then the seventh day would be the, the next day. So we know that it was a Sabbath day that year on the 15th day of the second month. And since the first month is 30 days, <clears throat> we can count back. And uh, when you count back, you come to the very same sequence that we have here. I'll let you figure that out on your own if you'd like to go through that exercise. If you have any questions, if you can't figure it out, we'll try to help you. But uh, that is the way that it was that year. So this is a very typical one. So the first uh, Passover was as it was this week. The Passover of Jesus' day was uh, of, of the uh, final Passover that he kept with his disciples uh, the one in which he changed the symbols was as it was this week. So there's a lot in common in that way. Again, we don't want to try to try to make too much of that, but it is a curiosity and it's interesting to think about. And certainly as we are huddled in our homes because death is uh, out there, uh, they were huddled in their homes uh, knowing that if they went out, uh, the death angel would strike the firstborn that year. 
Uh, our lives have been turned upside down in a shockingly rapid fashion or quick fashion. There's no doubt about it. When you look back a month ago, the economy of the United States was going along wonderfully. Uh, we had unemployment down below 4%, somewhere around 3.5% or even a little bit less, perhaps. Uh, one of the best economies in our history. Uh, we hear that it was it is the best or was the best. I don't know. Uh, there's a lot of hyperbole that comes out of the White House. And uh, there's no doubt about it, though. It is certainly one of the best economies that this country has ever known. When you get down around three and a half percent unemployment, that is that's really full unemployment. In fact, uh, seven million jobs were going without people to fill them, at least at one point in time. And all of a sudden now we have 10 percent unemployment or higher uh, this last. Uh, well, just today, I guess this morning, it came out another six point six million people filing for unemployment. Uh, that's on top of the nearly 10 million uh, from the two previous weeks. And so things have turned around in very rapid fashion. And I think it's really important for us to realize just how fast things can happen. God says when this country goes down, when Israel falls, when Jacob's trouble comes, it will happen suddenly. And in many respects, that's what's happened here very, very suddenly. So our lives have been turned upside down and in shockingly short order. But think about the children of Israel and how they their lives were transformed. They had been slaves all their lives. They were serving with rigor and hard bondage. And then a man by the name of Moses came into town. And for most of them, they wouldn't have known who he was. They may have heard reports of someone leaving 40 years earlier. But uh, for most of them, this was a stranger that walked into town, came out of nowhere, so to speak. He told them that God was leading them out of their bondage, and they were kind of excited about it, but they were a little bit skeptical, no doubt. And so he showed them a few miracles that some of them might have thought were just uh, good magician tricks. But he showed them a few miracles there. And then he went into Pharaoh. And Pharaoh wasn't too impressed. His magicians could pull off certain tricks, even though they could bring out a snake or their snakes. Uh, Moses' rod swallowed up theirs, showing that it was far more powerful. But nevertheless, uh, we find that uh, Pharaoh did not was not impressed with Moses and his request for them to go out in the wilderness to worship God. And so he took away the straw that the Israelites needed for making bricks and told them that they had to find their own straw, which really was ended up to be stubble. They had to gather that, and they could not decrease the amount of bricks that they produced each day, which when you had to go out and find your own straw, obviously that was a serious problem. And so instead of getting better, life got worse suddenly. But then we have the plagues that came on the uh, nation of of Egypt, and the first three struck the Israelites as well as the the uh, Egyptians. But after uh, those plagues came through, eventually you have the Passover, and the children of Israel uh, did escape from the land of Egypt. That eerie Passover night that was there uh, certainly 
uh, uh, was, was, you know, it was eerie to say the least when they may have heard cries that were going out. Now, how long did these plagues take to be poured out? Well, we don't know exactly for sure. There are some Jewish sources that say that it was about a year. But we also see in Exodus, the seventh chapter, and verse seven, that Moses was 80 when he and Aaron spoke to Pharaoh, when they went into Pharaoh. So he was 80 years of age. Uh, Aaron was uh, 83, but Moses was 80. And over in Deuteronomy, the 34th chapter, I'm not going to take the time to turn over there, but you can look this up, Deuteronomy 34 and verse 7. It says, Moses was 120 years old when he died. We know that the children of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years, and so when you start adding all those things up, very clearly it could not have been more than a year and must have been less than a year. Uh, many sources believe that it was approximately four or five months that those plagues were poured out. And that was pretty rapid fashion when you think about it. It was not all that long of a period of time when one plague after another, after another, after another. And so their lives were turned upside down in very short order. Jesus' disciples also had their lives turned upside down in a very short period of time. Uh, if we look over in John, the 12th chapter, for example, John 12, we read here in verse 1, it says, Then six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus, who had been a dead, whom he had raised from the dead, uh, so it was six days before the Passover. And then over in verse 12, it says, The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. And they cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, and as it was written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And so his disciples uh, did, not, did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were done. So here he came into uh, Jerusalem, and this was the, it is called the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. So this was approximately five days before the the Passover. And yet uh, just a few days later, after various events took place, and after he sat on the Mount of Olives and gave them the prophecies of things to come and all the various other things that took place in that very short week or so that, that was there described, uh, we find that he keeps the Passover with the disciples. and. That must have been an unusual Passover for them because he was talking about things that they had a hard time understanding. But nevertheless, he kept the Passover, and they went out that evening after the Passover, after singing a hymn, as we did the other night, and they went out to the, the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane. He was taken into custody. He was brutally beaten that night in the early morning hours, and then he was crucified about 9 o'clock, and he died about three o'clock in the afternoon and was put in the, the tomb just as the sun was, was setting. So a lot took place in a very short period of time. So here were the disciples, and here's this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. 
where it's it's like the whole world is is accepting him, and then all of a sudden, a few days later, he's dead, and they were shocked by all those events. So when we think of what's happened with us, how in the last month or so our lives have been turned upside down. We're not the first ones to experience that, and many millions and billions of people down through time have found that their lives can be quickly turned upside down. So we need to consider that. But Passover for us, as for the children of Israel, as for the disciples of Jesus, signaled not the end, but a beginning. And it's important that we understand that. Uh, oftentimes we think of, of baptism as as an end in itself. I think especially newer people, uh, they, they look at it, if I can just be baptized, then everything is fine, I've got it made. But it's really a beginning. It's the beginning of a new life in Christ, the seed of God being placed within us, and starting that process so that we can eventually be born into the very family of God. Today, we're going to look back on Israel's journey to the promised land, and we're going to see what lessons we can learn. And if you want a title for this, I'll just give it to you as Exodus Lessons. But we're going to see what lessons we can learn. And history shows that many forgot these simple lessons that we rehearsed from year to year. We go through these lessons year after year during this period of time. I don't know how many sermons I've heard and how many sermons I've, I've given on the lessons of the Exodus one way or another. The sermons may not be exactly the same every year, but we cover much of the same material. And yet when we look over the history, all the way from the children of Israel and what happened to them and how so many of them were left in the desert as dead corpses or the wilderness there, or whether we look at the New Testament church and how there was a tremendous falling away, uh, even in the first century, or whether we look at the 20th century and what happened with the Church of God and how we sat next to so many thousands of people over the years, and the majority of them fell away. So we, we have to realize that this is just a beginning, and these are lessons that we rehearse year after year but somehow people just don't get it. They forget these lessons. They all pray to the very things that God said to watch out for. So it's important that we do review these lessons year after year. Go back to Exodus, the first chapter. We're not going to spend a lot of time uh, in Exodus uh, today, but we're going to spend a little bit of time here. Uh, notice Exodus, the first chapter, and beginning in verse 13. It says, So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with harsh, harsh bondage, or hard bondage, and mortar, and brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. So it was a very hard life for them. And anyone who's worked in concrete and brick and this sort of thing uh, can tell you that it is a lot of hard work. I've, I've not done uh, that sort of work. I've done physical labor, uh, cutting down trees uh, one summer up in Oregon, uh, doing a lot of other things over the years. 
but I've never worked in concrete, and I understand that it's a very hard uh, hard thing to do. It's it's very uh, backbreaking, as it were. And so uh, they were having to work uh, under the authority of the Egyptians uh, as slaves, and no doubt were not treated all that well, as is very clear from verse 14. But then it says, verse 15, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shifra, and the name of the other uh, Pua. And he said, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew uh, women, and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then you shall, or she shall live. Now, that was quite a command coming from the Pharaoh. A command that to go against could mean their own death. And it is interesting that we read something here that I think is very helpful when we look at life circumstances and situations. For example, if you lived under the Nazis in Europe in World War II, uh, what do you do uh, when you might be hiding somebody or uh, protecting some someone and someone comes to your door? Well, it says the midwives feared God. They feared God more than they feared the Pharaoh and did not do as the king uh, of Egypt commanded them but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And their response was, really not uh, exactly being truthful on this, they said, uh, so the king of Egypt, uh, we call them, and verse 19, And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to the, come to them. Now, it's, it's speculation. We, we cannot know for sure. But notice that it says that they responded, the Hebrew women, not we. And they said, for they. So it may be that the midwives were not Hebrews, but they may have been Egyptians. Again, it's a speculation. We cannot know for sure. You, you could take that in more than one way. You could read it more than one way. But it says, uh, that, so they said they're lively and they give birth before the midwives come to them. And notice verse 20, therefore God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew mightily. So God honored them as they served God over Pharaoh. And so it was because the midwives feared God, verse 21, that he provided households for them. So God honored or blessed them for the fact that they saved the male children. And then it says, so Pharaoh commanded all his servants or all his people saying, every son who is born you shall cast into the river and every daughter you shall save alive. How many of the children of Israel were cast into the river to drown? Uh, we don't know. But the indication is, just from what is stated there and looking at the facts and in, in the way it would have been, that a number of male children were thrown into the river. You know, it's no, uh, it's no uh, coincidence, you might say, that 
the Nile being turned to blood was the first plague because there was a lot of blood, as it were, on the hands of the Egyptians for throwing the children of Israel into the river to drown. It's just interesting that it was turned to blood. That was one of God's plagues and the very first one. Well, those plagues continued. Eight more uh, followed that. And then the Passover, uh, the the 10th plague, and the night be much observed. And when we look at the children of Israel, they went out with a high hand. Notice over in the 14th chapter and verse 8. Exodus 14 and verse 8, it says, And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel, and the children of Israel went out with boldness. They went out with boldness. Now, the old King James says this, and it's really more literal. This is the literal translation. The children of Israel went out with an high hand. And you look that up, and it has to do with boldness or confidence or defiantly, uh, but it literally means with a high hand. And so they went out with great confidence, to say the least, with great boldness. But when they saw Pharaoh's army coming down upon them, they lost that confidence, that boldness, didn't they? And notice verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Eternal. And then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? But think about all that they had experienced and the, the death of the firstborn in Egypt and how God took them from being slaves one day to within a matter of just a few months to actually leave that slavery. And yet they lost all that confidence and boldness in a heartbeat as soon as they saw the armies coming down upon them, the Egyptian army. And so they said, why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. It's amazing how our human nature can flip-flop so quickly, change so rapidly. We notice that they had a problem, even though God brought them through the Red Sea. That was the next event there. God brought them miraculously through the Red Sea. And if you if you want to look at a miracle that should be the miracle of all miracles, I think that would certainly be it, uh, at least from a human perspective of what you can see. Uh, this was an incredible uh, thing that, that occurred there. Some of you might have been watching the the movie The Ten Commandments here recently. It comes around this time of year, and as the sea parts, uh, whether it looked exactly like that, it's hard to say, but uh, it, it was more than just a, a shallow reed sea that they often talk about because the Egyptians drowned in it, so it must have been more than just a few feet of water. And uh, it, it came and crashed down on a mightily. But we find that they came through the Red Sea, and it wasn't long before they lost confidence and faith once again. In the 15th chapter, and verse 23, it says, Now when they came to Marah, 
they could not drink the waters of Mara, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Mara. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So they lost, they, they, they got thirsty. Now, when we think about it, we complain. Let's be honest with ourselves and let's, let's repent of some of the things that we complain about. It's not because we are going without water. We're out in a desert and we come to a place where there's water, but it's bitter. It's, it's undrinkable and our water supplies are beginning to uh, leave us. Uh, the canteens are becoming empty. Uh, that was something that you could see why they would be concerned. In spite of the fact that God had brought these, brought them through all these miracles, that would be something that you could say that humanly speaking would be to, to complain about. But when we look at what we complain about in our day and age, uh, if we, uh, you know, the, the store is closed before we can get there, or uh, the price of gasoline, or, or you name it. Whatever it is, we as Israelites and as spiritual Israelites and as human beings are a bunch of whiners and complainers. We're like little tiny infants or children who whine and complain about everything. I was walking the other day, and somebody had uh, this child in a stroller, and uh, the, the little boy was was uh, screaming his head off. And I looked over at the parent and I said, life really is rough. And he kind of smiled. And and oftentimes when I see a, a little infant crying, I'll, I'll just look at him and say, uh, cheer up. It gets worse. It's not what they want to hear, not what they even understand sometimes. But the fact is that we are like those little children, whining and complaining about everything. You know, God is not pleased with that, as we shall see. But this is what happened to them. But they had a reason, you might say. They really didn't, uh, if they trusted God. But the fact is that this was something that was far more scary than the things that we face uh, in today's world, at least right now. In the 16th chapter, in verse 1, it says, They journeyed from Elam, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of sin. well named in a sense, uh, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. I pointed that out earlier. That it was 15th day of the second month. Then the whole congregation, verse 2, of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat And when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. God was incredibly patient with them. He gave them quail that evening after sunset, because very clearly this was a Sabbath, because the next morning was the first of six days where they would get manna. So at twilight, after the sun had gone down, He brought quail up upon them, and they had plenty of meat to eat. And God gave them manna, and that continued for 40 years. So God was very patient, very caring, just like a parent uh, seeing a small child uh, complaining or whatever. Uh, But, you know, there's a, a point in time where I can remember my father 
saying if I was crying over something, he said, you know, stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about. And that's the way that God was eventually with Israel. He tolerated this for a period of time, but eventually they should have grown up, and they didn't. And sometimes that's what happens with us. We we have to grow up. Well, let's continue in the 17th chapter in verse 1. It says, Then all the children of Israel, uh, the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they'd been through this once before. Uh, therefore, the people contended with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? Now, the first time when they were without water, God gave them water. He's going to give them water again. But you would think that they would have learned from the previous situation, but they didn't. And this was only a very short period of time, uh, still less than uh, about a month or thereabouts, uh, maybe a little bit more than a month, and they'd already forgotten the lesson. Let notice down in verse 4. It says, so Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Verse 5, and the Lord said to Moses, go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. And uh, and uh, take in your hand your rod with, uh, with which you struck the, the river, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place, notice verse 7, Massa and Meribah, because of the contention of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the eternal saying, is the Lord amongst us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? So he calls it Massa and Meribah. This is an interesting incident because it was really a, 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 a seminal incident in the lives of the children of Israel when they're coming out of Egypt. They haven't even gotten to Mount Sinai yet. But notice, there was another occasion when uh, it was called Meribah. That's over in Numbers, the 20th chapter. Numbers 20. And here we find it in verse 13. It says, this was the water of Meribah. Uh, because the children of Israel contended with the Lord, and he was hallowed among them. Now, let's go back to verse 10. Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Now, this was quite a bit of time later, and they're still worried about water to drink. And so Moses goes up on another rock here, and he lifts up his uh, hand. He struck the rock twice with his rod. But notice it said, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Verse 12, then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me to hallow me, to give God the credit, 
in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. And then it was called the water of Meribah because the children of Israel contended with the Lord and he was uh, hallowed among them. Uh, also over in the 20, or this same chapter, uh, chapter 21 and verse 24 says, Aaron shall be gathered to his people for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the children of Israel because you rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. So it's a reference to that. This was a, a contentious issue, not only for the children of Israel, but it became a problem for Aaron and Moses because it kept them out of the promised land. Uh, neither of them were to enter the promised land because of this particular incident. So even with Moses and Aaron, there came a point of going beyond the point of no return uh, with, with God in this rash act that uh, was committed there. The 27th chapter of Numbers, Numbers 27 and verse 14 says, For in the wilderness of Zin, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to hallow me at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah uh, at Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. So there was more than one occasion where it was called Meribah or uh, contention. Over in the book of Psalms, the 95th Psalm, Psalm 95, we have a reference to this incident. And I'm going to start reading in verse 6, Psalm 95, verse 6. It says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And truly, brethren, we are the sheep of God, the, the lambs that he is working with. And that's a, a wonderful, wonderful blessing. And I, I hope that we can appreciate the calling that God has given to each and every one of us. And, and each one of us, God called separately. In some cases, he called us through a parent or he called us out of the world directly. But God is working with us. And we should never take that for granted. And so he, he gives a warning here in the latter part of verse 7. He says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years I was given, I was grieved with that generation and said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know uh, my ways. So I swore on my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, when it says they were grieved, he was grieved with that generation when he tried and tested them. Uh, and in verse uh, 10, I'm sorry, verse 9, uh, well, uh, I'll get to it here. I'm getting ahead of myself here. But when it talks about how they grieved that generation in the day of rebellion, and that's in verse 8, uh, it says Meribah, or literally strife or contention. And uh, that's the word for rebellion. 
and it says, and of the day of trial in the wilderness. And that is uh, Massa. So the words that we read of there in the 17th chapter of Exodus are given here in the book of Exodus, and it's a reference to that occasion there in uh, Exodus, the 17th chapter. But notice that this this particular chapter ends in verse 11, So I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And that brings us to another passage of Scripture, which is found over in the book of Hebrews. So let's turn over to Hebrews, and we'll notice a little bit of the context of the book of Hebrews before we get to the immediate passage that we're looking for. But if we start out with Hebrews, the first chapter, and verse 1, it says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. And what follows here, he is showing that it was the one who became Jesus Christ who was our creator. He was the God of the Old Testament. He was greater than any angelic being, you know, to which the angel said he thus and such, as we read there in the first chapter. Then in the second chapter, it continues, but it introduces down in verse 6. Uh, it says, but one testified in a certain place saying, what is man that you are mindful of him? And so it starts out talking about the greatness of Christ. And then it moves in chapter 2 to the the reason that we were born. And I would uh, recommend the book on your ultimate destiny if you haven't read that one uh, lately. It's a, it's a tremendous, wonderfully encouraging booklet to realize what God is doing through us and what he has in mind for you and me. And that all these trials that we go through are absolutely nothing compared to what he has in mind for us. It's like, again, going back to a little child who's, who's always upset, always crying, falls down, and doesn't even hurt himself, but he's, he thinks he hurt himself. You've seen that with children. They, they fall down, and they, they start crying. Well, we do that too, don't we? And yet God has in mind for us to be full-born sons of his and how different that's going to be. We're not going to be children anymore at that point in time. Uh, we may be, in a sense, children, newborn children, but there will be a tremendous transformation that takes place, and we can only imagine what that would be like, and our imagination fails us in so many ways. So we find here that he describes uh, the fact that we can be born into his very family, that he has... Uh, is producing sons, and as Second Corinthians, the sixth chapter, verse eighteen to twenty, show that we're sons and daughters of God. And you can also put Romans, the eighth chapter, in this, and bring that all together, as is brought out in that booklet on your ultimate destiny. But when we get to chapter three, it says, verse. Uh, we'll start out with verse one. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who is faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. Verse 3, for this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house 
has more honor than the house. Well, the one who became Jesus Christ was the one who, who built the house, so to speak, for Moses. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. Now down in uh, verse 7, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the Meribah, or the rebellion, uh, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested, or Massa, me. Uh, they, tried, they tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore I was angry with that generation, and said they always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore on my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. A direct quote here from the 95th Psalm. And the 95th Psalm was going back to Exodus, the 17th chapter, of how the children of Israel tested and tried and contended with God. And so here's a warning for those of us during the New Testament era, as we would call it, uh, not to make the same mistake. He goes on to say, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. And so he begins to explain what the problem was here, an evil heart of unbelief, a, a lack of faith or confidence in God. The children of Israel looked to Moses. They looked to Aaron. They saw the physical. They saw the shortcomings of Moses. I remember Aaron and uh, Miriam uh, saw the shortcomings of Moses, and so they they contended with 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 him, but they really were contending against God. And so he says, "Beware, lest there be in any of us an evil heart of unbelief." So to lack belief, uh, to lack faith, God describes through the apostle part as an evil. Uh, heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is so deceitful. It can look so good at times, but it's very, very deceitful. When you take uh, two young people, a boy and a girl, a young man and a young woman, uh, sin can look pretty good at a particular time in, in their relationship. But it's deceitful, and there is a consequence for it. And you may not realize what the consequence is right away, but there is a, is a consequence, and sometimes it's a, an immediate consequence, sometimes it's not. But it is a sin. It is a violation of God's law. He says, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. So notice, all through Hebrews, he's talking about holding tight, holding on to the truth that we've been given, not letting it go. He goes on to say, while it is said today, if you will hear his voice, again quoting from Psalm 95, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Don't be like the children of Israel. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now, with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? 
to those who did not obey. But notice the last verse here, verse 19. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. So an unbelieving heart leads to disobedience. When we don't have faith, then we don't obey. A person who doesn't have faith is not going to faithfully tithe. They're going to cheat on tithing. A person who does not have faith when threatened with the loss of a job over the Sabbath or the holy days is going to cheat on God's law of the Sabbath or holy days. It it goes all through our whole life in every aspect of it. It takes faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, as it says there in Hebrews 11, verse 6. We have to have faith in order to please God, because otherwise we're not going to be faithful in obedience to God. So verse uh, chapter 4, and uh, let's go to chapter 4 and verse 1. It says, therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, or the promised land we would refer to here, let us fear lest any of you uh, seem to have come short of it. Uh, For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith, and whom, and those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said, so I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So it's speaking of a, another people that must enter into the rest, and that is hopefully you and me. But it's going to be the people of God, whoever they are, at the the end of all things, that are going to enter into God's rest. And many of our brethren who have gone before and are asleep in the earth are going to enter that rest someday. Uh, Let's notice uh, verse 11. Uh, It says, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And we have very encouraging words that follow here. Notice verse 14. Um, Oh, let me go with verse 13. He says, And there is no creature hidden uh, from his sight, But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So we must give account to God, but notice it says naked and open. And those words mean head back and uh, uh, neck, uh, or head back and neck back, kind of like uh, opening ourselves up to have our throats cut, as it were. When you when you have an animal sometimes that lays over on his back, he's saying, I give up uh, to a stronger a creature. And this is describing a very vulnerable position that we have before our God and our creator. And he says, there's no uh, creature but are uh, hidden, uh, no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to his eyes, the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So we are very vulnerable to God in that sense. 
But then he gives us this encouragement. It says, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let's not give up. Let's hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so he says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we must come boldly before God and claim his promises, as uh, Mr. Ames uh, always says. He says that so many times, claim God's promises. We have that telecast. We have an article coming out on that subject in the next Tomorrow's World magazine. And we need to learn to claim those promises, especially when we're in times of trial or difficulty. We need to claim the promises that God has given to us. Okay, let's move over to, back to, um, well, let me just refer to it here. I don't want to take time with it, but remember when Moses went up into the mount to receive the Ten Commandments? He was gone how long? Forty days. And what happened? The children of Israel got impatient. And they thought that, well, as to this Moses, what's become of him? And they went right back into idolatry, making themselves a calf. Now, I just bring this little point out in the sermon, because how long has it been that we've been under this shelter and home or stay-at-home order? I think it's less than 40 days. It's uh, significantly less. And it's a little different because we can go out, we can walk, we can we can do a certain number of things, we can, we can move about. but. As time goes by, people become impatient. And I think that as we go this this time that just seems like it was an eternity ago, but it's only been a very short period of time, we need to recognize as we go through these days, maybe we can think about the lesson of the children of Israel and what they experienced when their leader was gone uh, from them and they didn't know what was happening, and they were out there in the wilderness, and they just went right back to their old ways. So we need to be careful that we we don't do that, and I don't I don't think any of us are going to do that. But let's notice over in Hebrews, the 10th chapter, in this regard, Hebrews 10 and verse 35, it says, Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance. So that after you uh, after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. If there's one lesson that we could learn, I mean, there's so many lessons here from the children of Israel. They lacked endurance. They lacked patience. They lacked faith. All these lessons that they could have learned, but they didn't. But here the Apostle Paul uh, speaks of this: that we are to that we need endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Verse 37, for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Our lives are are running down, and those of us who are a bit older, we realize that, that we only have a short time left. And with this coronavirus, it could be even shorter than we, we would hope for. 
But we can have heart attacks. We can have other things happen to us. We can get in an accident, even if you're younger, a car accident uh, or, or some other accident. So many things can happen in life, and our lives can be sh- cut short. But the day is coming when Christ will return. The dead in Christ will be resurrected. Those who are alive and remain at that time will be caught up together in the clouds. We've got to keep that as our goal. We've got to understand that that is what God is holding out to us, that we can become the very children of God and and dwell with him for all of eternity. That cannot be forgotten during this physical existence that we're going through. And we need to look past this physical existence. He says, now the just shall live by faith. If we are just, we're going to live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. God is not pleased with us drawing back. He is only pleased when we move forward with him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. So that's what he, he says to them. And let us, let us, you know, be confident that we are also of the kind that will draw close to God to the saving of our soul, the saving of our lives. And uh, Paul is, you know, saying we're not of those who draw back. So, brethren, let us make sure that, that we are in that category. Well, let's move on. Let's go to uh, 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter. How could we speak of this subject without going there? And I'm going to give you six quick lessons from 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10. We'll begin in verse 1. He says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Obviously, crossing the Red Sea. Uh, this is it goes right back to our, our subject today, the Exodus. And they all ate uh, the same spiritual food, and they drank of the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. As we have this passage and uh, several other passages that show us that Jesus Christ was the personage, the person of the uh, the God of Israel, the one that Nadab, Abihu, and uh, Moses, and Aaron, and 70 of the elders saw on Mount Sinai and ate a meal, and they could see the God of Israel, as it says there. This was not the father. It was one who became the son. And so it says uh, in verse uh, 5, he says, now these things became examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So we find here that God was not, uh, uh, I'm sorry, verse 5 is what I meant, but with most of them God was not well pleased for their bones or their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Verse 5, I read that wrong. But God was not pleased with them. And so the first lesson that we could learn from here is that in spite of a miraculous baptism, the opening up of the Red Sea, what a powerful baptism that was. And our baptisms seem pretty mundane in comparison. But our baptisms 
have our sins forgiven, our past way of life totally forgiven, and by the laying of hands which follows, we receive of God's Holy Spirit, which is far more miraculous in that sense. And to have a truly converted life, to put our past uh, life away, is, is, is certainly a very uh, a great miracle in every sense of the word. But when we think of just physical miracles, they certainly had a, a powerful miracle. So in spite of a miraculous baptism that they had, they failed. They failed. And one lesson we can draw from this is that miracles do not last in the minds of men. It, it was not that long before they forgot it. They didn't even get to Mount Sinai before they forgot about God as the, the one that protected them and from all those plagues that they had that brought them through the Red Sea in a miraculous way. They forgot all those lessons. And all the lessons of, of manna for 40 years and God caring for them, they forgot about water from time to time, that, that God could provide it for them, even though he did on at least about three different occasions that we read of, and maybe more. God did those things for them, but they quickly forgot. That's a powerful lesson from the Exodus, is that miracles are not going to save us. I'm reminded of one of our ministers up in Canada who, who's not a, he's not a wimp by any means. Be, think of him as a pretty masculine guy. And he was visiting with a go-to in a Tim Hortons one day, and uh, this fellow uh, asked me, wouldn't even look at him, he just kind of looked straight ahead and he said, uh, do you believe in miracles? Of course, the minister said yes, and he said, uh, I want to see one. He said, well, you know, God will show you miracles. He said, no, I want to see one right now. And he didn't say it in a very nice way. And he had just gotten out of prison that day or that week. I can't remember for sure, but it was just, he had just basically just gotten out of prison. And our, our minister realized that this is kind of a, a tough character here to deal with. And uh, he was able to get out of that circumstance. And, but uh, this man wanted to see a miracle right then. But, you know, if that man had seen a miracle, it wouldn't have saved him. Many people have been healed miraculously. And some of the more spectacular healings that I can think of over the years have not kept people in the church. They've actually left the church, even been hospital to the church at one time or another. Miracles do not save us. So that's one lesson that we can learn from, the, from this. In Hebrews 11th chapter, verse 1, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And I've hammered this point at this point several times, but the the point that I want to hammer home again is that faith is the evidence. That's what the scripture says, that faith is the evidence of things not seen. It's a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So while our faith is based on evidence, we don't have a blind faith. We understand that. But nevertheless, it must go beyond what we can see. We must live by faith, not by sight. And, and living by sight, it can be either things that, that are frightening or things that are wonderful and great, like miracles, 
but we have to live by faith, not by sight. In Galatians, the second chapter, verse 20, I'll just quote the old King James Version, Mr. Meredith's favorite scripture. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. It is Jesus Christ's faith in us. We need to cry out to God to give us that faith. Not our own human faith only, but the faith of Jesus Christ must be in us. And in Romans 10, I won't turn there, but uh, Romans 10, verse 17, it says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. As we read this book, or as we study this book that we know of as the Bible, uh, that's, that's how God, you know, develops that faith within us, the faith of Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit and by working with us as we read this book. So those are things we must have. So miraculous baptism, miraculous events do not save us. It is faith that we need. Notice verse 5 again in 1 Corinthians 10. It says, but uh, with most of them God was not pleased, for their bodies were uh, scattered in the wilderness. And the next point is that uh, without faith, without following through and uh, obedience to God, then our bodies could be scattered in the wilderness of this world. When you think about it, consider all those who are baptized in our former association or former, former association, the Worldwide Church of God. There were at one time over 150,000 people at the Feast of Tabernacles. Now some were children, so they weren't all baptized. But the majority of those people have dropped by the wayside in one way or another, or are part of some kook church that calls themselves Church of God. I'm not saying all of them are kooks, but there are some real kooks out there. And so uh, many of these people have fallen away. They've lost the way in the wilderness. Unless they change, unless they come back, then they could be lost entirely. Now, that doesn't mean that we are their, their judge because we don't know how many were truly converted and how many just followed others into the church and everything like that. So I'm not saying we're judging them, but it's clear that there were many thousands who did get it at one time and actually have turned against the church and ridicule the church and what we believe in the Bible and this sort of thing. So yet uh, God was not uh, well pleased with many, even in that organization, and their bodies litter the sands of recent history. Let's notice verse 6. Verse 6 says, uh, and now, all these things were examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Now, lusting or coveting is one of the Ten Commandments. But Israel didn't get it. They heard the Ten Commandments, scared the daylights out of them. Even Moses says his knees shook or smote one against the other when God thundered those commandments from the top of Mount Sinai. But they didn't get it, did they? They didn't get any of the commandments in reality. But uh, they coveted, they lusted. Uh, John Strain encouraged us to review each of the Ten Commandments in his sermon that he gave last week. And 
it'll be up there on online eventually here, and I hope that you will review that if you, especially if you didn't have an opportunity to hear that. But do we still have that? I've got to have that certain thing mentality that we think that things are going to bring us happiness, that the abundance of things is is what life is all about. Do we lust after evil things? When, when we look back on the children of Israel, when God was really upset with them, uh, they were lusting for meat, and God uh, brought them quail. On, this was on a separate occasion from the first time. But when he saw how they were just gorging on them and everything, then he plagued them even while the, the meat was still between their teeth, as it's called, because they were lusting after those things. They were coveting those things. God did not like what he was seeing in the people there. Uh, verse 7 says, And do not become idolaters as uh, were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Well, that idolatry kind of bled over into other uh, actions as well. But idolatry is one of the two commandments among the ten that more time is spent on than any others because it is one that uh, not just having another God before the true God, but using images and idols and setting up even idols of the heart, a sermon that we had by Mr. McNair, I think it was, Mr. Carl McNair many years ago. If you can still find that, I would encourage you to, to look for that. But idolatry is a major problem. Uh, notice Deuteronomy, the 12th chapter, I'll just quote it here in verse 8. says, you shall not at all do as we are doing here today, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. Now that's in Deuteronomy, uh, the 12th chapter. This is at the end of the 40 years. And he's saying, you are still doing the things that you think are right in your own eyes. Now, the older generation had died off, so this is a new generation that he's talking to. Now, when we place ourselves above God, uh, we're worshiping the self. And in many ways, we're worshiping the image of who and what we think we are, that we are some great authority on something. We see ourselves as God. We put ourselves in the place of God. In other words, when we disagree with the word of God, when God says, don't complain, and we complain, when God says, remember the Sabbath day, but we rationalize around it somehow, when God says to uh, pay our tithes faithfully, and we rationalize around that, we're saying that I know more than God. Or, well, God will understand. Well, he'll understand the way I see things as opposed to the way that he sees things and the way that he is directed. And so when we do that, uh, we are seeing ourselves as God uh, able to determine what is right and wrong, which reminds us of Adam and Eve, how they chose the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree that said, uh, I, can, I have the right to determine what is good and what is evil. How often do we say something like, here's how I see it, here's how I see it, or here's what I think about the subject? Well, if what we think about it is what God thinks about it, that's one thing. But so often, we, and I put myself in this category, we, we, we say something, 
and we assume that God thinks this way as opposed to us. Uh, in other words, we, we make God in our own image rather than making ourselves in the image of God and seeing it as he sees it. Uh, we see this with the whole my truth is as good as your truth philosophy that is so present in our world today. A whole generation of people are being taught in academia and in popular media and amongst themselves a very different way of thinking than the way that many of us grew up. I mean, we were just as carnal, but we, we saw things as being solidly true. There was there was applying truth, as Mr. Armstrong in the magazine uh, named it. We saw that there were absolutes, but today in the postmodern era, there are no absolutes. Saul Alinsky is an individual who was a community organizer in Chicago. He was a radical. He wrote a book called Rules for Radicals. And at the very beginning of it, he praises Lucifer as the first radical who took on the establishment. That's interesting. And why is this important? Well, it's important because a number of politicians, one former president and one former president's wife, were heavily influenced by Saul Alinsky. And there's, I mean, that's just been reported in many different sources. And that philosophy is infiltrating a, a whole political movement in the world today. And when you think about it, someone who would praise Lucifer as the first radical, you begin to see who is working with that individual's mind and how that could spread to other individuals as well. Now, politics is a bad thing. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. But it explains a little bit about what's happening in our world today, especially here in the United States and the politics of our nation today. You know, Adam and Eve would be the heroes of today. Instead of praising Lucifer, uh, many people, without realizing it, are praising Adam and Eve because they chose to determine for themselves right and wrong. Don't let anybody else tell you what's right or wrong. You determine for yourself. And so we would praise them. And Adam and Eve uh, set us down the wrong track, and we've continued to go that way. Verse 8 says, Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Sexual immorality. In 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, Verses 9 through 10, it says, uh, list people who would not be in the kingdom of God. And it lists fornication, that's sex before marriage, and adultery, and various other forms of sexual immorality. It says that they're not going to be in the kingdom of God. Now, older people today, I've seen this in the church, Sometimes older people think, well, that law against adultery, or not so much adultery, but fornication, well, that's just for young people. But we, we know what we're doing. And young people simply think that they know more than God. But there's a penalty for that. And we have become so accustomed to sexual immorality that when two people are going together as a couple, 
at least in the world, you just assume that they're sleeping together. And sadly, that's too often in the church. That needs to stop. I can't stop it. Only you can. But I can speak out on it. And I think that we need to recognize that, you know, it's not what I think, it's what God thinks. You can come up with, well, this is my truth, or here's how I look at it. But you know, the only one that it counts for is God. God is the one that can resurrect you to life or can put you to sleep forever. God is the one who can bless you in your marriage or remove those blessings and say, oh, well, you're on your own. You think you can do it on your own? You're on your own, unless there's some real serious repentance. So I think we need to think about those things. It says, flee sexual immorality. That's verse 18 of 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter. Let's move on to verses 9 and 10. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents, nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Uh, notice over in Numbers, the 21st chapter, Numbers 21, and verse 4. Numbers 21, and verses 4 through 6. It says, Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became discouraged on the way. They became discouraged. And discouragement is something that can set in with you or me, anybody, at any time. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food nor water, and our souls loathe this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people. And many of the people of Israel died. That's the example that it's referring to there in uh, verses 9 and 10 of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 9 and 10. The murmuring and the complaining. But it was just one incident of many that we're warned against. I said that I'd give you six, uh, but I want to give you two more. In conclusion, let's go back there to 1 Corinthians 10 and go back to verse 6 once again. It says, Now these things became our examples to whom, uh, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as uh, they also lusted. These things became our examples. And then notice verse 11. Now all these things happened to them as examples. And they're written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. They're written for you and me, especially at the time of the, the end of the ages as they come on us. So that's a, a seventh lesson, you might say, that these things, all that we've been reading today, were written as examples for you and for me. And then in verse 12, it says, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So we cannot sit back and be confident that we've got it made. Even the Apostle Paul said that he could be disqualified if he fell away. So not only we find that these are examples for us, but we also see 
that we must not become overly confident. We are to have our confidence in God. Uh, we're not to be fearful. We are to be bold, as the Apostle Paul told us there in Hebrews. But nevertheless, we should not become overly confident because we can fall just as the children of Israel fell in the wilderness. But then he encourages us in verse 13, that no temptation has overtaken you such, uh, except such as is common man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So that's a promise, and we need to claim that promise, as Mr. Ames so often tells us. That's just one of the many. We must persevere to the end, however long that may be for each one of us. And as I said in my update yesterday, life is made of choices. And when difficult times come, we can view the circumstances we're in as, this is awful, this is terrible, and build it up in our minds as being even worse than it is, or we can see difficult times as opportunities for learning, for growing, for growing in strength, in endurance, and patience. So let us go forward confidently in the faith of Christ, the faith of Christ in us, all the way to the promised kingdom of God.